A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Oh, my God. The book is out tomorrow. Our book comes out tomorrow. So uh, our book is out tomorrow. Check it out. May 2nd is the release date. You can buy it now on Amazon or Indigo, or you can go to a bookstore on May 2nd or anytime afterwards and buy our book. It's a really funny book, so you should do that, I say to you as the person who is trying to sell you books. You can also come to one of our performances, our live shows, where I will be performing the book on stage somehow. That is happening in Toronto, Victoria, Calgary, Saskatoon, Edmonton, Winnipeg, Montreal, Hamilton, London, and Kingston throughout the month of May. And I am pleased to announce that I will be clothed during these performances thanks to our tour sponsor, Frank and Oak, who will be dressing me as I go on tour. We have a book out. Thank you. Last month, Desmond Cole walked into Toronto Police Headquarters. He went to a top-level meeting and delivered a fiery condemnation of the police, of the chief of police, and of the mayor to their faces. And then he refused to leave. Here's some of what he said before he was escorted out of the building by police officers. I plan to stand here in protest until you commit today, here, and now to restricting the police having our information going forward. You're going to ruin another generation of children's lives and I'm not going to allow you to do it. Okay, here's the context for what you just heard. As a direct result of Desmond Cole's journalism, the practice of carding has been recognized as a major civil rights issue in Toronto and in Canada. When police stop citizens, ask to see their identification, record that identification for future reference, all without laying charges or even needing to have reasonable suspicion, 
they do so disproportionately to black people. They often violate the Charter of Rights and Freedoms when they do so, and they create a toxic relationship between the state and the citizenry. These are truths that reasonable people have acknowledged. Even the Toronto police have largely recognized this by severely curtailing carding since Desmond Cole brought attention to it. But the data police have already collected on thousands of innocent people remains in police hands, where the police still have arguably wide discretion to use it if they feel they need to. And that is what Desmond Cole was taking a stand against. Last time you heard Desmond on the show was a year ago, shortly after his stint co-hosting our Commons politics show, and he was going full tilt all the time, writing a newspaper column, hosting a radio show, writing a book, embedding himself for night after night as a journalist at the Black Lives Matter tent city protest. Desmond was advocating. He was absorbing a disturbing amount of racism, hatred, threats. He was putting his body and his words in between the police and black people. And he has not slowed down since. He has a new documentary out. He is writing and fighting nonstop. And while Desmond is far from the only black journalist in Canada, far from the only black activist, his experience is singular. I don't think we've ever seen someone in this country embark on the mission that this guy is on. Never seen anyone take the space that he's seized. And Desmond Cole joins me in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Eric LaRock, Myrna Kostash, Megan Leslie, Valerie Solway, James McCallum, L.M. Freer, Vincent Saint-Ange, and Alex Midgal. Alex, why did you decide to be awesome? Because the hosts you bring on your show are funny and have different opinions, and I'd like to keep you in check. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does 
BetterHelp. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. And this episode is also brought to you by our founding sponsor, FreshBooks. Okay, so tax season is over, so we can stop worrying about this stuff. Or maybe you could do yourself a favor, do one thing that will make your next tax season so much easier and the entire year in between. And that is, if you are a freelancer, if you are running a small business, if you're an entrepreneur, use FreshBooks for your billing. Use it for your invoicing. Use it for your expenses. Use it for your time tracking. It is no longer front of mind, all of this tax stuff. That doesn't mean that you can't make a decision that is really just buying yourself a wonderful gift, that is doing something that shows incredible self-respect and professionalism. Take yourself seriously. It is worth spending a little bit of money every month if it saves you time, if it gets you paid quicker. Why not look your best when you're sending invoices to your clients? They are an amazing little Canadian company that became an amazing big Canadian company. They have millions of people using this because it's the best thing out there for the thing that they do. Try it for 30 days for free. You don't need to give them a credit card. Go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. Give it a whirl. It is stupid simple to use. And when you do decide to become a customer, tell them that CanadaLand sent you. Thank you, FreshBooks. This episode is also brought to you by TunnelBear. If you are not sure where to start when it comes to protecting your online privacy and security, if you are one of the many people who knows that this is real, who's been warned that this is a problem, who fears all kinds of negative outcomes, your ISP spying on you, selling that data, government, all kinds of things, but you don't know what to do about it, check out TunnelBear. It is a beautiful privacy app that makes it easy to add a layer of protection to all of your devices. You just turn on TunnelBear and your internet connection is encrypted. Nobody can see which websites you're visiting, your IP address, your other identifying information. It gets swapped out to look like it's coming from TunnelBear's network. So you keep your location private. It is very, very easy to use. You just turn your bear on. If you have questions, you need help. They have 24-7 support. You can access the internet as if you are accessing it from many different countries. Different countries get a different internet. Why not see what that's all about? Go to tunnelbear.com slash CanadaLand. You can try it for free and you don't have to give them a credit card. This makes sense. Go to tunnelbear.com slash CanadaLand. Desmond, you have a column in the Toronto Star. I do. You are a journalist who writes a column. I don't think there's any dispute about columnists being journalists. Okay, let's hope so. Here's a Toronto Star headline. Activists' protest against practice of carting derails Toronto Police Board meeting. Mm -hmm. I'm confused here. Well... It seems like, or, or perhaps the Toronto Star is confused. Let's talk about this distinction. You, following this incident, tweeted about it. Have you all noticed that when I speak my truth, I'm often described as an activist, but no longer as a journalist or author or radio host? Like, what's behind this? Do you feel mischaracterized by that headline? or And why do you feel like there's such a shifting definition of, of just what you are well uh it's complicated right but i think that in, no, now in the stars case i will be fair to them they were the only publication that i saw that also identified me as a journalist and said like kind of the stars own desmond cole does this thing and the reason i think that's important is from a really basic honesty and ethics perspective i work for the star I work for um, News Talk 1010. And so I think that when they're reporting on me, 
it's incumbent upon them to tell their readers that I have a work relationship with them. Oh, sure, they got to disclose. And, then, and that they, yeah, but but not everyone did. Uh huh. So I think that's the first thing to point out is that this isn't just for me about like you will call me what I want you to call me. It's also about being honest with your readers about the relationship between you and the person you're reporting on. So that's the first thing. Um, beyond that, now I think it's pretty obvious what's going on. There's a distancing that's going on. There is a way that journalists are saying, when you do this, you might not really be a journalist or an author or a broadcaster anymore. We are characterizing you by the action that you're taking, and that's it. You can't actually be anything in this moment except an activist. And I think that's ridiculous. I don't think you shouldn't call me an activist. That's what I am in part. And I put that in my bios. Mm -hmm. and I, I sell myself as that. That's what I am. I'm not only that. And that was why my tweet was very specific in saying, do you notice that I lose all of my other credentials and I am now only activist? And I think it's a way of the media saying, well, to be impartial or to be neutral or whatever they think they're doing, we won't call this person a journalist. We don't want to be caught pretending or validating that what this person is doing right now is journalism. It's but wait a second. Where in the media is it incumbent upon a columnist to be neutral or unbiased? It's not. But That's, I mean, but this, is, this is part of the confusion is that for years when I did write about carding, I tried to do so from that more traditional um, neutral space. But I was very clear a couple of years ago when I gave a deputation at the police services board. I'm not doing that anymore. I announced it to the whole world before I changed my tone. I said... This is hurting me too much. It's affecting me too much. And I can no longer just pretend to do objective journalism on this issue. And so I think I've been pretty transparent with people on this particular issue of carding, of police stopping us and keeping our information. I've been honest about where I stand. And yeah, I'm an opinion maker for the Toronto Star. That's what I do. When I go on News Talk and have my show, I am giving my opinion. Yeah. So the fact that I would do so in a public forum defiantly really should not be as controversial as it was. Well, a couple of things. I mean, the idea that your personal feelings about trying to maintain some idea of objectivity or neutrality on carding as you report on something that affects you directly as a black man is itself a lie. Like you can't make any kind of valid claim on objectivity or neutrality on something that affects you directly. So whether that makes you feel good or feel bad, simply saying I'm speaking from a point of view, a subjective point of view is actually just like being honest, which you might argue is a higher objective of journalism than whatever faint towards objectivity, you know. Beyond that, I kind of feel like there may be a point that you can't be a reporter and an activist because an activist has an agenda. Yeah. And a reporter is there to tell people what's happening. Yes. And I wouldn't want somebody who has a political agenda to be entrusted to tell me everything that happens because if something happens that goes against their agenda, they're now in a conflict. I completely agree with that. And that is why I announced publicly that I wasn't going to be doing that kind of journalism on this particular issue anymore. I have to be honest with people that I'm talking to with my audience about the kind of work that I'm doing. But I will also say that there's this apparent confusion that when you're giving your opinion, that you are now somehow operating outside of a fact-based world. I am giving the facts and giving my opinion on those facts based on the way that I see it. I am not eschewing the facts and throwing them away and just saying, here's all my feelings today. Let's make this about me. I'm using the information that all of us have seen reported in places like the Toronto Star, 
to talk about carding, to talk specifically about what's been reported on the issue, and then to say, based on this factual reporting, here is what I believe our leaders should do. And the idea that I can't do that without being biased is, again, it's ridiculous. But I mean, come on, Jesse, let's be honest, right? Like, the media has done a really poor job on this issue. And one of the biggest, I think, failings of the media is a failure to highlight how important carding is and how detrimental it is to the lives of black people. Mm -hmm. So the media in the... I went back and looked, okay? The first story I ever wrote about carding was May of 2012. I'm coming up on five years of just writing and talking mostly about this issue. And it hasn't changed a thing. That's not true, is it? It's changed very little. The police are still carding, and they were carding in 2012. The police still have all the information that they were collecting before 2012 now. Is there more scrutiny on them? Yes. But John Tory actually said a really funny thing when he was criticizing me for shutting down the meeting the other day. He said that, oh, you know, we were there to communicate things to people, including the fact that they have new rights, said the mayor of the city of Toronto. Our rights are enshrined in the charter of rights and freedoms. A provincial regulation on carding cannot give a human being new rights. It can make sure that the rights that we already have are enforced, which was the point. Yeah, or could stop uh, you know, trespassing on those rights. Right, but there's no law that got changed. That's, a, that's the point yeah. I'm trying to make here. We don't have new rights. The police might have new responsibilities to us in protecting our rights, but they're still not even doing that. So when I say very little has changed in five years, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. And I feel very sad because what I see with all of this, is he a journalist? Is he speaking out of turn? What I see with all of that is a desperate attempt not to take the issue outside of me and what I'm saying. When I was on my way here, I saw an update that this woman that got stuck up in a crane yesterday, that they were taking her to court and there's 50,000 cameras following her. I've seen streeters. Well, they will go up to people, strangers on the street and be like, hey, what do you think about that woman who got stuck up in a crane? I have not in five years once seen the media go into a public square, go into a neighborhood and just ask black people, what's all this about carding? What is this practice? How is this practice affecting you? How is it affecting your family? Has it made uh, any difference in the way that you go about your life? Our media are terrified of talking to strange black people about a subject that is very uncomfortable for our mostly non-black media. So what do they do? They focus on me. Yeah. They focus on myself and sometimes Nia Singh, who's another law student who's been very open about carding. And that way they can just attribute everything back to us. Are we saying it nicely? Are we making a strong enough argument? And they never have to talk about the thousands and thousands of people who this is happening to. I think that this is a, a really telling example. And I want to have a conversation with you where like for the purpose of this conversation, you're not going to find much argument here. I think that the idea that the cops, like, I hope that reasonable people agree that this is just, you know. Against the law? It's yeah. a mark of a totalitarian state. Show me your papers. Like, fuck off. And the retention of that data, and I want to talk about that in more detail, there is a perception that something has been done as a direct result of your Toronto life story and that mm. carding is finished, that that's been dealt with. Mm-hmm. 
the semantic argument, is he an activist? Is he, like, this, like, this is retrograde old bullshit. Like, we've had activist journalists for a long time. Yeah. That is a category that's existed. And in various capacities on the right and the left, we accept that people can do both those things at once. And there's best practices around disclosure. And you might want them opining but not reporting. Like, yeah. to get lost in that, I agree with you, just feels like a way of talking about anything but the issues you're bringing up. And so the question is, why is it that people are trying so desperately to delegitimize me? Okay, and, and, that's what and, I want to talk right. with you about. Because my sense of it is not that people feel very strongly that carding should continue. And it's not that people feel very strongly that the cops should hold on to that data. My feeling is that there is, like in the DNA of this country, a weird adherence to the status quo. What I hear when people criticize you is just about how disruptive you are, how unpleasant it is, and, and your tactics or your tone, or what is he really, it just feels like it's coming from a place of intense discomfort with the idea that things are broken and that they need to change. I would add to that because I agree with everything you said. It is about complacency. It is about wanting order more than you want justice and liberation for people. But it's also about anti-black racism. Everything that you just named, the fact that is he really a journalist, even the idea that I shouldn't be allowed to make money. So I shouldn't be able to profit as a journalist if I have these opinions and I'm willing to act on them. I'm being too forward. I'm not that? letting other people talk. Hold on that one first. Do you yeah. get that like that? Oh, this guy's on the make. Is that something that comes up? Like oh, yeah. That I, you know, I must be making money. Somebody must be paying me to go and, um, you know, sit for five years in police board meetings and then decide one day that this is too much for me and it's hurting my community. Yeah, of course, there's some notion that I'm somehow profiting from talking about this, which is ludicrous. Well, I hope you are. I mean, you do have a career. Like, this is an no, interesting no, thing I, about you. I that... work. I work for my living. I go to work like other people do. Yeah. And I get paid for the labor that I do. There's nothing different about that if I decide to go to the police station and put my fist up in the air or not. I don't make any more money. I don't do any better. But what I'm saying to you is that all of these like resentments that don't seem to really add up to anything, that don't really seem like they're coming from anywhere, for me, a lot of that is about I don't like that this black person is here telling everyone else what to do. This black person's here not letting other people speak and have their turn. Who is he to think that he's so right about all of this? There is a really thin veil of racism mm -hmm. happening here, which is something that I experience everywhere in my life all the time. And so when I start hearing these things, it's all very familiar to me, as is people saying things like, well... We're lucky it didn't get violent this time. What if there was to be violence? A co-host of mine on my radio program actually said this after hearing about what I did. He said it would be interesting, in his words, to see what would happen if this escalated next time. So he's basically paving the way for me as a peaceful, calm protester to have the police attack me because that would be more interesting for somebody like him as an observer. And these things are all very familiar That's to your me. your co-host. Sorry, I said co-host. He's a host on the station. He's a colleague and, uh, and, and another host on the radio station. But yeah, this was what he said. This was his commentary is that it would be interesting to see something like this get violent. And I have to say at this point that there is another reason why people are so angry at me relating to race, and it is because of the existence of Black Lives Matter Toronto. Mm -hmm. Because what I did at the police station in standing up and refusing to move and putting my fist up 
reminds people of the kinds of disruptions that Black Lives Matter Toronto have taken in the last couple of years. And Black Lives Matter for a lot of people in our city, including the media, is just a shorthand for troublemakers, again, disruptive, don't want to listen to anybody, maybe even violent, maybe they're the real racists. And so for people to see me doing this, it just reminds them once again of a black liberation struggle that they don't feel that they benefit from even though I am fighting for everybody in the city, and they resent me and want me to shut up and go away. This demeaning tone and this attempt to delegitimize, it's all very familiar. Black people are not supposed to get anything unless the white majority agrees to give it to us. And I'm breaking that rule Mm -hmm. by standing out on my own and saying, I will not wait for you to give it to me. And I think that that um, offends a lot of people. It hurts their racial sensibilities. I want to talk more about the role of a disruptor and the role that you have taken of intentionally trying to make yourself an obstacle. There's a couple of things I want to pick up on first. I was surprised to hear you make this distinction that there's no connection between the the work that you do, the labor that you do, which is labor like anyone else's, and then the activism, that you're kind of asserting a border there. I feel like there is an inextricable link between the types of things he does as an activist and the types of things that he writes about as a journalist. I'm interested, is he an activist who uses journalism as one of his tools? which I think at times you do. And I see the way that you navigate between CBC making a documentary about you and you're writing a book and you are on News Talk 1010, that you are charting a very different path than somebody who affiliates with a movement or with a lobby group and says, I'm an activist, this is where I work. And I think that there's a way that that is automatically marginalized, especially in Canada. And I feel like you're much more effective because you are seizing broader media platforms and positioning yourself as a journalist. And I feel like that's a part of your activism. I'm not really doing anything new. But what's interesting to me all the time is when you represent the status quo, when you represent the establishment and you represent power and you say the things that they already agree with and that are already happening, no one says you have an agenda. Nobody calls you an activist. Right. Right. It's when you are <laughs> a boring activist. Well, but that, I'm a status quo activist. But, but, I'm, I'm working really hard to keep things exactly the way they are. That's what the media does. You and I both know that that's exactly what the media does, well, but it, nobody frames it that way. And it's rigidly policed. There really is yeah. the, the, the responses when you stray. People who are invested in the system defend the system. Yeah. You know, and not only they think of themselves as being an activist for the status quo, but that's the effect. It's absolutely the effect whether you're meaning to do it or not. When you ask me questions like my colleagues did after my disruption about, do you think this is the best way to get things done? Yeah, what do you think about that? So I'm standing in a room with 15 people pointing cameras at me asking if this is the way to do it. Well, why are you here if it isn't? Yeah. Right? You get a lot of coaching. But that's where the bias in the media comes in because the bias for the media would be sit in the meeting room, be quiet, wait your turn. If they don't listen to you, that's awful to come back next time. Too bad. You know, you have to work within the system. That is their bias. They will never communicate that outwardly. But that's the thing is that I'm trying to say everybody has a bias. I'm just trying to put mine out there. In terms of journalism and how I use it, I am a journalist, and I think that I'm trying to fill a void. Can I tell you a story? I actually got asked by a news network, which I'm not going to name, and I've done work for them. I got asked by them if I would do what they called a social experiment. They wanted me to be one of several black men riding around in a car in a mostly white neighborhood, and they were going to follow us this was their idea. This sounds to, like marketplace. To this see, is, uh, to see. I'm not going to say anything, but to, uh, to this see. Sounds like CBC marketplace. They wanted to follow us to see if 
we were going to get followed by the police. Uh-huh. This was their social experiment. I could take a year to explain all the things about this that are effed up and bother me, okay? But behind it all, when they called me and said, we have this idea for a social experiment, I immediately was like, let me guess, you want me to be one of the people in the car. Mm -hmm. And you know how I knew? Because that way they have a familiar black person to talk to about an issue that they otherwise don't really feel comfortable going out and doing their homework about. And this is why I bring that up. And this is why it matters to me is because I don't see that kind of basic journalism in the news for a story that's been with us for five years. And so I'm trying to provide that journalism myself. I'm talking to black people. I'm interviewing the black woman who used to work at the airport named Ayan Farah, who lost her job for a while because of carting. Because they said that she was affiliated to gang members and had this loose connection through carting. They didn't even say that she did anything wrong. I have call-ins on my show where people tell these stories because these stories, a lot of them filter through me and it ends up being a loop where people know I'm one of the only journalists who will share these stories. So they all come to me because the rest of the media is not doing it. I think that you're making the distinction that like to actually go to the communities and talk to the people is what's lacking. Interviewing me and interviewing a couple of other known people who this issue affects is not really doing the work. One more point about carding before we move on. It occurred to me when I thought about what you were arguing for, ultimately you'd want this data destroyed. I never say destroyed anymore. I started off saying destroyed. That's a bridge too far? Well, it's like this, okay? Because our real issue is that the police have access to this information Mm -hmm. that they collected over all of these years, stopping people who were not suspected of any crime, who are not accused of any crime, and taking all kinds of personal information, which then gets stored in a database forever. And I really want to be clear on this, okay? Because Mayor Tory, since my protest, has come out and he has played the victim. He's really good at that. He said, well, we would love to destroy this information. I've even been out there saying that I would like to destroy this information, but our lawyers tell us that we cannot destroy the information. First of all, I think that's a garbage excuse, but let's take him at his word that his lawyers say it, and let's even pretend that the lawyers in this case are right, and that there's some legal thing that stops them from destroying and hitting the delete button on all of this information. Well, that's very different from letting the police have ongoing access to that information. That's not the same thing. So John Tory's being very legal when he tries to get away from this by being like, we can't delete it. You can stop the police from having it tomorrow. Keep it at the province. Keep it with the Privacy Commission. That's fine. And keep it so that people can do research where we really, really understand how this happened and look at it and study it in the years coming. I actually want that, which is why I don't say delete the information anymore. I don't know. There's such a bad track record of authorities losing information that I would say that deleting it is probably the ethical thing to do. But But you you see the distinction that I'm making. I see where you're at and I I see that you're you're more interested in putting the lie to John Tory who says we can't delete it, but we're not going to use it except in these circumstances and the circumstances are actually a loophole that's like a mile wide. You don't get to decide how you use what you stole from you. Yeah, this is an issue that is going to affect minorities and it's going to affect poor people first. We are aware that there's widespread police surveillance. We are aware that it's out of control what law enforcement can collect on us, but most people haven't felt the ill effects of that. So it's an abstract issue. It ultimately will be a problem for you. And I think if you are pushing for more transparency and accountability and and hopefully ultimately policy around this for black people, 
that is obviously going to be extended to everybody. If carding is banished throughout the land because of what is essentially a civil rights campaign against it that you're launching, it's actually a civil rights for everybody campaign. Of course, but- So it affects white people too, everybody. Of course, but, 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 but. The reason that white people and other non-black people are not so interested in this as we are is that maybe it won't really affect them in their lifetime. Maybe it'll only affect a few people who aren't black. Like the idea here is to keep reinforced all the time the idea that if this is mostly happening to black people, they must be doing something to deserve it. That's the message. And that's why people don't care because... They're putting us into a box, and this is what people do for everything. Higher crime rates in the black community, higher rates of black kids getting kicked out of school or suspended from school, higher rates of black kids being apprehended from their parents. In every single one of those cases, people who are not black just shrug their shoulders and say, well, it must be because they're doing something. I'm, I'm not actually worried for white people, for the average white person, certainly, that one day they're going to get carded. My people are going to go first, man. Like, we're the ones bearing the brunt of this right now. I'm not fighting for some future where it's going to be everybody and I'm scared for everybody. I'm fighting for my damn self and for my people. And that's the reason why I can't get any support, because... This all lives matter bullshit that we're experiencing yeah. right now in 2017 tells people that unless you're fighting for the general everyone, which erases me specifically as a black person, it's not really a worthy fight. It's not really even a just fight. And for me, I'm like, we also have to remember black people do get disproportionately stopped and documented by the police, but so do homeless people. Yeah. So do people with mental health issues. So do queer and trans people. Lots of other groups of people get targeted by this kind of police practice. And if you can't get on board for those people's sake instead of your own, if the only reason you can convince yourself that you should do something is that maybe this will affect me one day, you're probably not going to do it because it's really just a hypothetical intellectual argument. You actually have to be willing to fight for somebody who is not you, even if it doesn't help you at all. That's the whole point. That brings me to what I want to talk to you about because like. Politics is about what's real and people, I think, don't get upset about things that happen to other people as much as they get upset about things that happen to themselves. I can totally appreciate your reluctance to like shape your activity and your activism to placate and engage and no, no, this matters to you too and how offensive that would be. And yet the practical reality is that people might have to feel some personal, you know, uh, buy-in or some threat to themselves before you get widespread support. It kind of speaks to your relationship with whatever mainstream Canadian society is. And this thing we were talking about earlier where people are always coaching you and offering you advice. I'm like, yes. oh, I agree with you, Desmond. But do it this way. But do it this way. And you remarked that critics of your activism tend to be white men who are telling you that, you know, you get more flies with honey than vinegar. And if you weren't so emotional and if you weren't so angry, people might be more receptive to your argument. And you pointed out their arrogance in assuming that that was your intent to sway them. Mm-hmm. Fair point. But who is your audience? My audience, first and foremost, are the people who don't need the honey, who don't need to be baby talked. My audience is people who experience the things that I'm talking about, first and foremost, because a core belief that I continue to try and develop in my activism is that those of us who are fighting back are enough on our own. And I am not playing mathematics when I say that. I don't care 
whether or not the rest of the population can overwhelm us and silence us and ignore us. I stand for my right to fight back on its own merits, whether people want to listen or not. Now, I also believe, Jesse, that a very small group of committed people, no matter what their aim, can and have always been the ones to bring about change. So I just, this 50% plus one garbage in our society that we talk about, you, you can't win until the majority of people agree with you. If that was the case, almost none of the issues that I care about would ever, ever, ever be resolved because... Most people don't agree with a lot of the things that I advocate for. So I'm out here to strengthen and to validate the experiences of people like me. Okay. So you're not interested in getting 50% plus one. No, I'm, not a, I'm not a politician. You're not a politician. You're not trying to win over hearts and minds and get everybody on side. Nope. Your audience are people who are fellow travelers. Yep. Who listen to News Talk 1010. <laughs> well. Fellow travelers who read Toronto Life magazine. They do now. And they do now. Okay. And when I write in the Toronto Star, they do read that paper now, even if they might not okay. have before. And that's the thing is that I am claiming those spaces for our people. And I'm saying this too can be a space for us to tell our stories and to get our voice out. And in doing so, I will say that the annoying thing about everybody trying to tell me how to do what I'm doing, besides the fact that they have no idea what the fuck they're talking about, is that I'm extremely effective in what I do. And I have a large following because of the way that I do what I do. And a lot of people who don't have these experiences personally nevertheless listen and go, oh, and then they think about it and then they start talking about it and then they start asking other people questions about it. And I think that for curious, inquisitive people, I do open up a lot of space and start important conversations. That's all I'm hoping for by doing it the way I do. I can't focus on the outside kind of circle of that audience first. I focus on the inner circle, but I think I do a good enough job focusing on that inner circle that people who aren't in it are nevertheless curious and interested and supportive. I don't believe you at all. No? <laughs> no, I, I, I believe you. I, 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 I think you... Uh, I'm, and I, I like that. <laughs> I believe that you're very effective. And that's always what's frankly like very entertaining. People are always telling you what would be more effective and then you're effective. And I was sort of one of the people who always raised an eyebrow at on the street activism and at disruptive things like like rolling my eyes. And then you realize, oh, they don't care if I agree with them. And in fact, the annoyance and irritation is part of the political tactic that ultimately works because they're, the point is to force an issue under the nose of people who would rather ignore it. And, and so force... why, don't, why don't you believe me when I say that's exactly what I'm trying to do? Oh, I believe that's exactly what you're trying to do. But I don't believe that you're on News Talk 1010 and in the Toronto Star and in Toronto Life and all the other spaces that you seize and occupy so that you can just bring in audiences of like-minded people. I think you are absolutely taking the fight to people who disagree with you. I think that that is a part of why it's so effective. I think you are courting conflict in hostile spaces. Okay. News Talk 1010 is a hostile space for you. Well, I've made a home there. Uh -huh. for, you know, for what it's worth. And you saw what, people who would find it interesting for you to be involved in violence. Sometimes. Not all or my a victim of violence. Not all my colleagues want to see me get beat up inside the police station at News Talk 1010. I you have go to, to work say that. Where, yeah. where Jerry Agar goes to work, you go to work. Jerry who? who? I've never. I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll leave Jerry <laughs> but, out of this. Please. I beg you. What I'm trying to say, though, is when I was at the police station last week and deciding to uh, disrupt, I was doing exactly what you're saying. I was taking the fight to somebody else's turf. I will never deny that that is a huge part of my strategy. And the reason why is A, 
We have been ignored as black people, I'm talking now, for far too long. And if that's the effective way for us to make it impossible to ignore us, then that's where I want to be. But it, it also, I, I can't tell you how validating it is for people to see a black person on the cover of Toronto Life magazine because yeah, that but that's the, not why it works. I think that's a great. It's not the only reason that it works, but I'm telling you from the perspective of a black person who talks to other people who often get really angry about what's on the cover of that magazine. So to see something that represents them and is genuine and is talking from a different perspective is extremely validating for people. And and then the fact that I can use that space, not just the fact that I am there and okay, like, look, everybody, like that same black guy is in all these different media platforms. I'm trying to bring my people with me. So I'm trying to share stories that relate to and speak to issues in my community when I get into those spaces. And it is the equivalent of, you know, like when somebody ignores you maybe first you call them then you write them a letter and uh then you write a petition and when none of these things work you just show up on their damn lawn Mm -hmm. right and i think we have to do that if we're actually serious about the things we believe in which i am so i don't know if it would be interesting if things came to violence i think that would be awful but i definitely felt a threat of violence watching you stand there at that police services meeting with your fist in the air surrounded by cops yep the optics, the theater of that, the the fact that it is a physical act that you are disrupting and, and you're occupying the space, you're stopping things from happening, you're surrounded by cops, you're surrounded by people who could take your freedom, they could take your life. I don't think they were going to do that in that moment. No, but they're doing it every day, you, which you, is my whole point. You've been accused of trying to engineer some theater where like, oh, he wanted to be dragged, kicking oh, and screaming. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I can't wait till the police put their hands on me. Yeah, I can't imagine that. <laughs> and, and I feel like watching that, I felt like... It's loaded. It's tense. It's not my role, but my primary emotional response to a lot of things you do is I feel concerned for you. Let's get into this, man, because we need to talk about this, okay? Okay. First of all, when I was at the police station last week, they decided to adjourn the meeting. They just said, no further business. We're, We're calling it right here since you've decided Desmond to disrupt. They voted for a motion to end. They ended, all the politicians and police, including the chief, you know, they got up from the table and they walked out of the room. People on the civilian side who were there just to watch, kind of milling around, talking about what just happened. It was about 10 minutes after the politicians and Mark Saunders had left the room that the armed police officers came in to escort me out, Jesse. So I want everybody to think about why that would happen, because You can't say that I'm disrupting anything anymore because the disruption part is over. And I am not posing a physical threat to anybody, nor am I breaking any law, nor is there any real reason to suspect that I am breaking any law. So why are there armed police being sent in to escort me out? You should be worried about me, my brother, because this is the whole friggin' point. That we as black people can't do anything without a police response, and by the way, without a huge segment of the population validating and excusing that police response. So there are plenty of people who are like, well, if you disrupted the meeting, what do you expect is going to happen? Well, I expect to be arrested when I break the law. Mm -hmm. I expect to be arrested when I threaten somebody's safety or I violate the criminal code of Canada. Absolutely. I expect that. I don't expect it 10 minutes after I disrupted a meeting and everybody's gone home and the situation has been diffused. 
Mike McCormick, the police association head, he said that my tactics were getting old. Right. So the spokesperson for our police in Toronto believes that peaceful assembly and peaceful protest are getting old. So what's he saying then? Again, this air of violence that you're talking about, what's going to happen when the police feel like me exercising my legal rights is getting old? And if I can add one thing, why is the police services board, which is the civilian oversight of the police, mm-hmm. why do they meet inside of the police headquarters, Jesse? They want it to be an intimidating yeah. place. So I just kind of think that these things, they reflect back on themselves. You're not dumb to be scared. But what happens next? Like you bring up the predominance of black kids being taken into child services, vastly overrepresented. We were talking before we started this interview about streaming and the effects of in the education system. Yes. The outcomes for, for yeah, black, black kids getting sent to lower streams and therefore not having the same uh, educational opportunities and then work opportunities. You have practical policy issue after practical policy issue. Then you've got a macro campaign, which is essentially to try to get some kind of consensus that we have a racism problem in Canada. This is a life's work times 10. I know you have allies. I know that there are other people doing this work. I think you're in an interesting tension where you recognize that there's something wrong with you being the go-to guy who CBC Marketplace or whoever it was calls and who is always the guy who's called. And yet you're going to do that if you can. But I feel like a larger sense of concern for you specifically in this singular role that you have created for yourself. When I decided I was going to take this action at the police station, I really didn't feel that bad at the time. When I left and walked out of there with a friend, went and got some roti and like everything was good, man. I was fine. Two days later, Mm -hmm. when it was the weekend and I was sitting in bed, that's when all of the emotion about what had happened and the fear and the risk, that's when it all kind of flooded over me. I'm not in the public eye when things like that happen and I don't want to be. Yeah, That's my business, but it happens. It's part of this work. I feel it just as anybody else would. And believe me, all the love, all the support that I get. Yo, no one who hasn't received the love and support of black women will ever understand how powerful and supportive black women are. I swear like eight times out of 10, it's a black woman who's like sliding into the DMs or sending me an email or calling me and being like, are you okay? So I have a disproportionate amount of attacks But I also have a disproportionate amount of love and caring and support and a network of people. Without that, I wouldn't make it, you know? And I have days where it's hard to get out of bed, man. I have days where I do not want to face any of this anymore. I don't want to turn on the radio and hear somebody talking about me and probably in a disparaging or really skeptical kind of way. That wears on you. Talking about all the support you get, it makes me think of some scenes in The Skin We're In, the CBC documentary about you, where you're in a barber shop and there's a, a lot of respect and regard for the work you do and other scenarios where I've seen you getting a lot of positivity from various communities. You seem to have this strange position and opportunity. And I know you're saying that you do this for all these people who need representation of these issues that are inarguably important. But I have to wonder if part of your motivation is that there is this opportunity to try to put your finger on something that 
no one really understands yet, which is what does it mean to be black in Canada? And I think that there's almost like a moment now where people are curious about that and are open to the idea that there isn't one thing. Mm -hmm. This undefined territory in this country of, okay, so your parents are from Sierra Leone, Mm -hmm. then we've got a large Jamaican population. Halifax, Nova Scotia, there are people who've been here for a very long time. There are all sorts of different black experiences and black people. I I see where you're going. While it is not possible to tell one story or have one narrative or one embodiment of blackness in Canada... We are all sharing something in common that does bind us together. And what that is, is the experience that us and our ancestors have had to face as people of African heritage, particularly people of African heritage who can't be in the places that we were born anymore and have to try and figure out life here. In Canada, that's the thing that binds us together. That's what binds us together with our American family who are black is the fact that we are as a diaspora, we're still going through something that is happening to us from the outside. And all of us as black people understand from our history, from the experiences of our parents and of our ancestors, what that thing is. And we bond over that. We hold each other over those shared experiences and that shared history. And so that's really what blackness is for me. It's not even so much about blood or about geography as it is about shared history. If it's true that we are behind in this country and that no one person can tell a story of this magnitude, but there is a literature in the United States where that kind of dam has been broken and all of those experiences have started to be defined. And we have established the mainstream, then we've established diversions from that mainstream. And I wonder if one of the things motivating you isn't the opportunity, and this is with respect to other people who've written work here that is important and meaningful, but is that the book that you're working on? Mm. It feels like that book has yet to be written. The book I'm working on, I hope is gonna be new. I hope it's gonna be different. And yes, part of my goal is to put the idea out there of Black Canada, Mm -hmm. of Black Canada as being distinct from the United States of America, but yet again, still having those common shared experiences of oppression that we understand each other for. But yes, there is something completely different going on in Canada that I don't think has been explored in a mainstream, popular way way. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not doing something new. I think what's new is the popular platform that I have. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to start as far back as we can go about black people on this land that we now call Canada. And I'm trying to work my way forward. What I'm hoping I can do is say, well, come with me. Let's actually go back to when black people were first here in Canada. We're going to get back to the present day. We're going to get back to Black Lives Matter, Toronto. We're going to get back to a future project for black people in this country. But first, let me tell you a little bit about your history, which I guarantee you don't know because it was not taught in your schools, because it was not talked about in your popular culture. And let's work our way forward so that by the time you get to the end of my book and I start telling you about the discrimination that we're facing today, you will actually have a context that is hundreds of years old and local to your own 
country. I find that to be a really helpful way of teaching is not to start from what I'm going through right now and what others are going through, but to start from what we've all been experiencing literally for centuries on this land as black people and work our way forward and say, can you see the line? Can you see that continuous line? It feels like that's almost the only thing that would break through the stubborn refusal to accept that this is a racist country, right? I think that the amazing thing too about Canada is that we're so good at saying the when a black person raises their issues today that we're not living in the United States. That whole we're not the US thing has become the really shorthand, easy way to try and wriggle your way out of anti-blackness in your own country. That's the weirdest one when you get accused of like wannabeism. I get that a lot in your mentions where people are like, you're trying to cop the same problems I don't think it's weird. I I think it's like straight up racist. And as many books as I could write, as many docs as I could make, or as many of these interviews as I could do, I'm never going to convince most people. It's too big for me and it's too big for my people. But I sure as heck hope that we can find the strength to fight for ourselves, whether it's convincing for people or not, because we're out here man. We're here. It's 2017 and we need to be heard. So I'll let history and the pundits and the many, many commentators on what I am doing, I'll let them decide how effective or whatever the fuck they want to talk about, man. I know what I'm doing and black people know what we're doing. And, you know, we have to take strength in each other and keep moving forward. Thank you, Desmond. Thank you. That's your Canada Land Show. I hope you liked it. Email me anytime. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read what you send me and I respond when I can. Hey, we have a book that just came out. Why not buy a copy and then check the bestseller list to see if we beat Neil deGrasse Tyson. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. This week, we have a new episode of Commons on Tuesday, a best of the imposter on Wednesday. Producer Kevin Sexton is still with his newborn baby, and I will be back with Shortcuts on Thursday. This show is produced by Ali Graham and Russell Gregg. If you like what we do, please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will let me serve in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.